Good morning, Chapel Hill. For those of you who are visiting with us, my name is Paul McVitie. I'm the lead pastor here at Chapel Hill. Thanks, Dale. And I have the privilege of bringing God's word to this congregation on a weekly basis, and it really is a privilege. Um, I was preparing for an outdoor service, and so um, since we're not doing an outdoor service and I don't get to do things differently, I'm, I just brought a table up instead of the podium just to do it differently, because it was supposed to be a different Sunday, and I didn't get to do a different Sunday. I did not wear camouflage pants, however, <clears throat> or a sweater with ninja bread men on it, uh, in case you didn't see that from the back. That was creepy. Okay. Um, <laughs> feels like I'm coming back, so it feels like it's, it's good to be back. And for those of you who don't know, our family went on vacation this past week. Even though I was here last Sunday, I'm here this Sunday, it feels like I'm coming back like I've been away for a little while. And uh, we, uh, we had a fantastic week. Um, took the family up to Ely, and then up northeast of Ely, there's a place called Fall Lake. It's an entrance to the Boundary Waters, and there's a campground, Fall Lake Campground, right there. And so way back in January, I found the only site on the water left and booked that one for this week. And, and we went up and camped up there and um, had a, a beautiful, a perfect campsite right on the lake. It was spectacular. Um, three days before we left to go up there, the weather forecast was for rain every day that we'd be up there. All we got was sun and 70s. It was perfect, and, and I know you guys were, were toughing it out down here. I heard about some of the stuff that came through this area. I'm sorry for that, but thanks for taking it away from us so that we could have a great vacation. Appreciate that. Um, we had an awesome time. We rented a couple canoes. You can get them up there for $20 a day, and uh, that's a great way to do it. And we spent a lot of time out on the water fishing and, and had uh, campfires every night, lots of s'mores and, and all that kind of stuff. We had a really, really good time. It was amazing. One night, the last night that we were there, we were listening to the wolves howl in the distance, um, in the far distance, thankfully, um, but just had an awesome time. Um, while we were up there, I, I tried something very different for me, very outside my comfort zone, um, but um, I got my ear pierced. Um, my left ear up in the top, up in this lobe up here, um, <clears throat> by my son, <laughs> while casting out of the canoe, <clears throat> yep, got me right there. It was a treble hook, it was barbed, <clears throat> and yes, out in the middle of the lake, I ripped it out of my ear myself. So that was a treat. And my, my poor son is crying because he's done something horrible to his dad and he feels just terrible about it. Guess what my wife was doing? <clears throat> yeah, she's like, hold still, I want to get a picture. <laughs> she even asked me to recreate it afterwards. <laughs> I was in so much pain. I'm like, nope, not this time, not this time. I love you, but not this time. No way. Anyway, we had, a, we had a great time. We really did. We had an awesome week, and it was so good to just be away and enjoy what God has created. Oh, my goodness. Just the sun rises and sun sets on the lake and uh, just being out there and paddling along with the loons and catching tons of fish and just having a, a great, great time. It was such a 
a delight, and that is so refreshing for me and, and for my family. I want to tell you a story this morning about something that happened to me a few weeks ago. Um, I had the, the privilege of being part of uh, an event that was put on by Habitat for Humanity. For those of you who don't know Habitat for Humanity, they're an organization in Twin Cities and elsewhere in the country as well um, that addresses the, the housing crisis in cities like this. And they look primarily at refugee families and families that just can't get out of the current housing situation that they're in. They will come and build new homes or renovate homes for these families. And it's not just them doing it and then somebody moves in. The family that's going to occupy that house is invested. Labor-wise, financially, all of it, they put equity into that home and then they have a new place to live. And so Habitat is doing this in a bunch of places around the cities right now. And it is, uh, some of the work that they're doing is, is absolutely incredible. And so I have been, every year, I've been doing this event called a Senior Pastors Build. And so they invite senior pastors from all over the Twin Cities to come together and build for a day with Habitat for Humanity. And it's, it's been a great experience. Um, they know what to do with people like me who have no skills or who are, who are really gifted at breaking things. Um, they know what to put in my hands so that I don't break more things that they have to repair. And so we were working. We had this whole group of pastors that came together, and we worked together for the whole day. And uh, we were in northeast Minneapolis, and we were in this, uh, on this road where Habitat was building three houses in a three-block stretch on that road. And um, I was uh, delighted to discover that the house I was working on last fall was an option for me to work on this spring to go and help finish that house. So it was really cool for me to be able to return to a house that I had been working on and was familiar with. Um, I had worked on painting the exterior of that home, and um, this time I went in now and finished it by caulking all of the, the cracks and, and the holes where the utilities come in and all that kind of stuff. I worked on caulking the outside of that home. Uh, and I got to spend another day working with former Mayor Coleman from St. Paul. Um, he is now the head of Habitat for Humanity in the Twin Cities. And uh, he and I worked together again. We worked together last fall. And so that was a real delight as well. He's quite a man and has uh, quite a job that he does. And so here we were in the house that we were working on. Um, I, I was already familiar with the family that was going to be living there. And it was a, a refugee family, uh, a Somali family. And they had six kids and they were living in a two-bedroom apartment. And you can imagine how they're just tripping over each other and how difficult their life was for them. And so uh, Habitat had approved them for a home and they were building this home uh, that the family was involved in and they were going to be moving in soon to this house. And they had two other families that were working on the two homes, one on either side of that on that street. And so we're working, working our way through the day, and um, the afternoon rolls around. <clears throat> kids are coming home from school, and it was just fun to watch the, the bus pull up, and all the kids get out, and the street just kind of comes to life. And there's kids playing in the yards and running all over the place, and, and then moms come out of the house, and they're sitting out in, in the front, and, and, um, and it was just, it was this beautiful scene. And so I was trying to picture this family living in this house and being a part of this neighborhood. And it was just this, a great feeling. And at the beginning of the day, 
they got all the pastors together and they had pre-selected somebody to pray. Um, and, and this particular pastor opened the day in prayer and part of his prayer that he prayed was that um, the work that we're doing um, had to do with, uh, with creating for this family the world that we dream of. And it was a very passionate prayer, and it was brought up again at lunch. There was some comment made about that statement in the prayer and this world that we dream of. And it all just seemed fantastic. What an incredible thing we were doing. What a huge pat on the back I was giving myself for what I was involved in. And uh, midway through the afternoon, the kids got home. They're out in the yards playing, and, and all of this is going on. <clears throat> and I had come out in front of the house, grabbed a wheelbarrow, and I was, I was cleaning up trash from around the house as we were finishing up the job and loading up a wheelbarrow to take it down to the dumpster that was at the house at the far end of the street, the third one that they were working on. And so I had the, the wheelbarrow loaded up and was ready to go down to the dumpster. And at that moment, on that block next to me, a car pulls up. And these two guys get out of the car. And immediately, every mom screams for their kid to get in the house. And the tension in that block went through the roof. Moms and kids disappeared instantly. And you could feel it. It was crazy. Whoever they were, they owned this neighborhood. Or they had some kind of influence. There was something going to happen that created panic up and down that street. Being the idiot that I am, I needed to walk right through that tension. I needed to feel that. Because I could see it happen in an instant. <clears throat> and so I did. I walked right down there with my wheelbarrow, right past these two guys, and down to the dumpster. I needed to feel what was happening right there in that moment. Because it affected everybody on that street. And suddenly my my attitude towards the whole thing, my perspective on the whole thing changed. What was I doing? What were we doing? Here I was, happily, joyfully, building this home for this family that was going to come and have this beautiful house, the world that we dream of in that neighborhood. And it hit me in the face and it made me ask myself, is this really compassion? Is this what there is to it? Now, I, this, is not a, this is not a slam on Habitat for, for Humanity at all. They do incredible work all over the Twin Cities. And neighborhoods are changed through these families who have sec the security of a home. And, and there's more that goes on. But there has to be. There has to be more that goes on. This morning as we continue our, our series this summer on deconstruction, I want to talk about deconstructing compassion. And look at what it is that we're doing that we call compassion, that we understand to be compassion. Not in a critical way, because this series is not about me standing up here going, stop doing what you're doing and do it better. That's not what this is about. 
And I hope you got a taste of that last week. We're going we're gonna to return to a little bit of what we did last week, this week. We're going to do that again. I want to walk through two principles with you this morning related to compassion, and then back up to last week and pull that process into what we, what we do because there was a pattern that we set. It had to do with receiving and asking and then practicing. And I'll come to that at the end. Principle number one related to deconstructing compassion. Principle one is this. There is no compassion from the top down. Compassion does not happen from the top down. Compassion is not about people in need and the heroes. Compassion is not about seeing somebody who needs something and agreeing with yourself that I have what they need and so I'm going to give it to them and it's going to meet their need and it'll be taken care of. It is not about top down. That's not compassion. My compassion, my compassion for the families in northeast Minneapolis fell short. Was it compassion? Yes. But this morning I want you to understand that compassion that originates from us, compassion that holds us as the source, can only go so far. It cannot fully express the compassion that God is calling us to express to the world around us. It can't. What we were doing in Northeast Minneapolis and what we do in a lot of the compassionate things that we do is we're just redistributing God's resources. We're, we're balancing things out a little bit. We're taking from over here and moving it to over here, which is good. But it's not the fullness. It's not the full expression of compassion the way that God has called us to be compassionate Compassion is based on equality. It's based on equality. It is not the haves and the have-nots. It is not the givers and the receivers. It is based on equality. And I want to show you how we see that in the compassion that God displays for us. Because that's where we have to start. We have to understand how God demonstrates compassions, compassion and has demonstrated compassion towards you and me. It's very much about equality. And let me show you what I'm, I'm talking about here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to, to wherever I am looking. That's fine. Um, if not, just, just listen. I, we didn't have slides for today because we were going to be outside. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. This is what Paul writes to the church at Philippi about God's compassion. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You can have this mindset because you're in Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just hang on to equality with God. That wasn't the plan. Jesus humbled himself to the point of becoming one of us, even to the point of death. He took on the likeness of humanity, of you and I. And from there, from there, he demonstrated the compassion of God for us. Listen, God had compassion on us. When he saw what happened to mankind, the fall of man, when sin entered the world and took over, and this became Satan's kingdom, God had compassion on his creation immediately. Immediately he put a plan into action. He had and has all of the resources. He's got them all. And his resource was Jesus. That was the resource that he used, and his plan was based on humility, on Jesus lowering himself, humbling himself, and becoming one of us. From there, he exercised compassion. Compassion is not mere charity, handouts, pity, a pat on the back. There's much, much more to compassion than that. We, church, are not the source God is, God always will be. His resource is Jesus. Our resource is Jesus. And that's what we have to give to the world around us. There is no compassion from the top down. Principle number two. Compassion is not religion. Compassion is not religion. The Bible speaks to this in many places. God tells us and he shows us what it is that he's looking for. Through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke to his people, to the nation of Israel, and they were in a place where religion was starting to replace the things that God really cared about, that were really important to God. Religion had become bigger and better than that. And so God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to an entire nation, to his people, and saying, hey, you've lost your way here. You've lost your path. This is not the path that I have for you. This religion that you're practicing, although it looks good and feels good to you, is not what I'm after. And so he says very directly to Israel, he says this, this is what I'm after. And in Isaiah chapter 58, those words are spoken through Isaiah, Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 12, and, and God begins with addressing the fast. They were fasting, and fasting had become quite a show for them, because God had commanded fasting, and they were doing it in a big way, and it had lost its meaning. And so here's how God addresses it in Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 12. He says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And then he corrects them. Is not this 
the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then listen to what he delivers on this. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then shall you call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt you shall raise up the foundations of many generations you shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in how's that for a promise Wow. But earlier on, in verse 6, he talks about loosing the bonds of wickedness. That's not a simple thing. Undo the straps of the yoke. What is it that the people around us in this world, ourselves included, are driven by what's pulling us along what are we attached to that's taking us away from God away from the direction he wants us to go what is it that we're enslaved to that yoke why are we sharing a yoke with something that is not of God that's oppression and he's asking us to address that kind of oppression to free people from that kind of yoke, that kind of bondage. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And he mentions some very practical things, sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. He's talking about the people around us and how we take care of them, how we address their need, but on a far deeper level than simply charity, than simply handouts. Micah 6, verse 8 is so crystal clear on this. I love it when, when, when God puts in the Bible like such a, a direct thing for us. He makes it very obvious. There's no way around this. Um, I, I will never forget this verse, not just because of the content of it, because I have a friend named Micah who is six foot eight. Guess what his favorite verse is? <laughs> Says, he has told you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Okay, well, he's going to answer the question. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Paul addresses this in Colossians. He writes to the church in Colossae in Colossians 3 verses 12 through 14, and he gives us an idea of the kind of mindset 
that we're to have as we carry out God's call to be compassionate in this world. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, wow, there's a little affirmation right there, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's a little deeper than a handout. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you know what he's talking about when he says compassionate hearts? He's getting after the core of who we are. He's getting after our heart, which is the seat of of our tender affections like compassion, like kindness. That's at the heart of who we are, and Paul's addressing that. Literally, this refers to the bowels in which compassion resides. That's where it is. It's deep. This is God's character, church, reflected in our lives, in our character, because we were made in his image. Now I want to back up to last week and go through these three things that I introduced last week. Receive, ask, and practice. First of all, receive. Receive God's compassion. Think about what God's compassion towards you looks like. He sees you first. He sees you first. He knows your need, but he sees you first first. He understands you. He understands your specific circumstances. He understands who you are specifically, personally, individually. And he has compassion on you. He loves you perfectly. Perfectly. And he responds in a way that brings eternal change into our lives. Listen, the plan that he had, his compassionate plan towards us, it was not a simple plan. God had all the resources. And he could easily have just sat there in heaven, top down, gone, I'll fix it for you. But his plan was so complex. Sending his son Jesus to become one of us at the perfect time, fulfilling all prophecy, using every person that he had called to be involved in his plan. It was a complex, thought out, very, very effective plan to express compassion to you and me. Receive God's compassion towards you. Do you need compassion? Yes, you do. I need God's compassion. Receive that compassion that God is expressing and giving to you. Secondly then, ask God to grow this characteristic in you. It is not your responsibility to grow it in you. We'll get to our responsibility in a minute. Our responsibility is to ask our creator, the one who created us in his image, to awaken this part of his image in us. It's in there. If we were created in his image and he is compassionate, we are compassionate. It's a matter of asking God, saying, God, please, please release this through me. Awaken your image in me. And then, then thirdly, we get to practice 
compassion. We practice it. We do. God has commanded us to be compassionate towards each other. It's there, and there are opportunities all around us to practice compassion here, here in our community, in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, here in this church, in the way that God designed compassion to be expressed. It's, it's everywhere. It's all around us. And our role is to stay close to God, to abide in him, and ask him to flow through us. Ask for his compassion to flow through us, out into the world around us. One of the, the ways in which um, we have been given the opportunity to express compassion, I know many of you are in this place right now, is towards aging parents. And I'm going to ask my wife to come now. She is she's going to share with us a little bit of, of our experience, her experience with her mother. And so come, Kim, and, and share a little bit of your story with us and how God is working in you and has worked through you. First of all, let me just say that I told him if I took that picture, he would find it funny in the future, in and the he future, did. I didn't. Wasn't also, then. it was his favorite lure, and I've heard about how that lure, for 27 years I've heard how that lure can catch anything. <laughs> and now I believe it. Panther Martin, it'll, it's wonderful. I am a catch, officially. <laughs> Best catch of my life. <laughs> we had a debate about what kind of fish he was. I won't go there. <laughs> Northern something. <laughs> Small mouth, I'm sure. Are you done yet? This is why he doesn't give me the microphone often. It's just, okay. About once every three years, they let me up here. Many of you know my mom uh, was quite ill for a while, lived with my family for a year back in 2010. And you welcomed her with open arms, and I will love you all even more for that. So thank you, those of you that were here during that year. Um, she came from a, a Methodist background, a pretty conservative, quiet church full of old people, and she felt very comfortable here, so thanks. That was, that was great. Um, she had come to Minnesota for a family wedding, and on the trip back to Michigan, she had a heart attack in Rockford, Illinois. And so my family gathered, all of us siblings, and we tried to figure out the best course of action. And it seemed to be to bring her back to Minnesota and to live with us. I wasn't working at the time. I was just uh, taking care of three rowdy little ones. And that seemed like a great idea to bring a parent with a lot of needs into that situation. Um, Yeah, that's how we roll. So uh, she came back with us, and, um, and we soon discovered that my mom hadn't really ever seen a doctor for anything since she'd given birth to me. And that was back in... It's Sunday. I'm not going to make you do math. Nobody really likes doing math on Sunday except maybe Eric or um, David. So, <laughs> But when she would see a doctor, she'd be very stoic and say, oh, I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine. And they would never check. And so there were health problems that she had that we didn't know. She had stage 4 kidney disease. She had congestive heart failure. She had some lung issues. And she had some early stages of dementia. Um, my mom covered it well. She could... Very few people realized her dementia was happening because she would just fake it or get by and smile and, and make it. So people didn't realize how many things she'd forget and in, in the ways that she would cover for it. Um, she ended up seeing about four different doctors um, 
and we had respiratory therapy for her three times a week. She ended up in the ER five times during that time, during that year with us. Um, one time she passed out in the car. She would refuse to let me call an ambulance, and I was afraid that calling the ambulance would cause more anxiety for her and more stress on her heart. And we lived 10 minutes from the hospital, so we would just drive her there. And uh, the time she passed out, I thought she had died, and it terrified me. Um, like I said, we had the three boys. They were... Uh, two five-year-olds and a two-year-old at the time. Um, we tried to work on some other issues, too, at my siblings' urging. She needed hearing aids. She finally consented to getting them, but getting them and actually using them, that's two very different accomplishments. We learned that quickly. Um, with congestive heart failure, low oxygen is an issue, and low oxygen makes you forgetful, inattentive, and unable to think clearly. And my mom had a very complicated medical routine, a severely restricted diet, um, Supplemental oxygen, and we discovered she also had sleep apnea, so we added a CPAP machine to it. She couldn't remember to wear the CPAP or the oxygen line a lot of the times. Um, and one high-sodium meal, just one high-sodium meal would land her back in the ER. Um, meds were put in a large labeled tray, and she would struggle to fill it. I would make corrections, and she would look completely defeated. Um, We'd go to appointments. She needed an advocate because she'd tell each doctor, I'm fine. I feel great. And, and I would say, okay, but the, all these things are happening to her. She needed somebody to speak up and say, but this is what's actually happening. I think partially she didn't want to admit it, and partially she couldn't remember that things were happening. Um, she needed somebody to write down what the doctor said. I found a smart recorder on a phone. is a wonderful device. Um, I don't know really what happens with that with doctors. I never told them I recorded. I just flipped my phone over. So they thought I was being respectful and not looking at my phone when I was at an appointment. But I recorded every single doctor appointment, and that was helpful. Um, apologies to you medical people out there that might not agree with that. <laughs> anyway, um, it worked good for me. So um, taking the medicine at the right time would be a challenge. She'd forget, be embarrassed, and tuck it away. Tuck the, the pills that she missed away in a purse or in a drawer because she didn't want the kids to find them, and I would find them later and wonder how many she'd missed. And, um, and it was just, it was so hard because she, when I'd find them, she, she was embarrassed. And so I tried to linger and make sure that she took them, but she didn't want me to remind her. She didn't want me to linger. And, and her dignity was being stripped away bit by bit. And she felt that that was part of it too, that I didn't trust her to do this, to be responsible. And I'd explain, it's not your fault. You can't help it, the low oxygen. and um, So I know many people um, have health crises that are much more complex than what my mom had. I'm fully aware of that. And we had it pretty easy overall, I think, as far as how intense her health situation was. It could have been so much worse. And um, sometimes life is so brutally hard, and watching a loved one suffer is excruciating. So for those of you in the trenches right now, ask for prayer. We will gladly lift you up and pray you through that. Um, I'm really grateful for my mom. We had a good relationship. I had a very good example of how to help people um, because my mom knew how to take care of people. And honestly, I always thought compassion came pretty easily to me. Um, especially when we were overseas, I thought I did really well at it. I would have described myself as compassionate and caring and patient. Um, so I did my best. I made sure she was on track with meds. I cooked as low sodium as possible. I monitored oxygen levels and blood pressure. Um, I peeked in after she went to bed to make sure the CPAP was being used. I made sure she did the right things at the right times, and she didn't like it or appreciate it at all. And we argued a lot, more than a lot. Um, 
because I loved her and I couldn't stand that she was struggling because I wanted to help her like she helped others. What I didn't realize was this, more than a, a hacky at-home nurse, um, more than a wannabe respiratory therapist, my mom still needed to be a mom. Maybe you have a loved one who still needs to be a mom or a dad or a brother or an aunt, and as they near the end of their life, um, they're facing that struggle. My mom spent her life caring for others. She thrived on it. It gave her purpose and meaning. She needed to be needed. She needed to be part of the daily routine and help out with the rhythm of our family's life. Um, so I started asking her to help with the kids, with cooking prep, with asking advice for her recipes. It only resulted in one ER trip to the, to the, for our boys. She carefully used a baby gate to make sure our boy was safe while we were gone. We hadn't used baby gates in years for Asher at that point. So he thought it was a cool climbing toy and ended up in the ER with a little... A little injury from the hour we asked my mom to watch the boys, so yeah. she didn't want to do that after that. She's like, no, you, I'm not going to babysit. So, um, But she read books to the boys. She played checkers with them and never let them win. Um, wanted to teach them humility. <laughs> and that she told the boys about my dad. And my boys, they never met my dad because my dad met Jesus before we met our boys. So she filled them in on the details of his life. And I, I loved that. I loved hearing it. We recorded family stories and and we laughed more than we argued then, and that was a really healthy thing. Um, tension started to kind of melt away. It would come back. It would come back when, we, when she'd get worse and we'd get stressed. Um, but she couldn't remember things, so I wrote letters of affirmation, telling her I'd been blessed with a great example in her, things I loved so much that she'd done for me growing up. Um, but I also said in the letters that because of the low oxygen, I need to remind her of certain things like when to take meds, and, and I was going to do that even though she didn't like it because I loved her and because that's the example she had set for me. And I can't tell you how many times I'd walk by her room and she would be rereading those letters, weeks, months after I wrote them, rereading them. Um, in the winter of my life, I hope that I still find some purpose in helping others. I hope that I'm still needed. Pay attention, boys. In that season, I think, um, compassion didn't mean being the medical compliance enforcer. That's what I thought it meant. It didn't. Compassion was being affirming and giving my mom back the dignity that was being stripped away by her health issues. It was acknowledging her primary need to be needed and to show through words and actions that we really valued her. So thank you again for all the kindness you showed my mom. I appreciate it more than you know. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. We learn how to practice compassion. But it begins with receiving God's compassion for us, not pushing him off and going, I don't need it, I can do this on my own, but receiving God's compassion, understanding, especially how he's presented it in his word, how we can see how he has expressed compassion to us, receive that compassion, thank him for it, let it wash over you. Turn around and ask him, say, God, will you please flow through me? And then practice compassion. See people for who they really are. Don't just see the need, see the person. Understand what the need is. Maybe it's not a, a medical caregiver. Maybe it is for someone to just affirm that person that they are still mom and that they are still needed and valued. 
Love deeply, love agape style. We've been talking a lot about that and what it means. Love that way. Respond. Just respond. God's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the, the motivation. He's going to nudge you in the right direction so that the things that you do are effective. And you're going to fail sometimes, but you're going to get back up and you're going to try again because it is a reflection of God's image to the world around you. That is compassion. And church, can you imagine? This world is very disillusioned with the church right now, particularly our culture. They don't think very fondly of the church right now. Wouldn't this be a great way to turn that around? To be compassionate. To receive, ask, and practice. To be that for this world. And I ask the ushers if they'll come now, and the worship team as well. Um, Just a reminder that after our closing song here, uh, we are going to have a church business meeting right here, so stick around for it if you want to. We could, we'd love to have all of you here, but members in particular, stay here so that you can help us and vote on a few things that um, we're looking at um, for the next few months here. So stick around for that. Will you pray with me? God, I'm so grateful this morning for your love and how it came to us, how you looked at humanity, you looked at the world, not just back then, but for the whole world that you would create over the next thousands of years. You looked at all of it, at all of us, and your heart was moved deeply with compassion towards us, and you set in motion right away a very complex but very effective plan to save us to express your compassion towards us. God, thank you for that. Thank you for it. Help us to just receive it with open arms and hearts to receive that love that you have for us. We ask, Lord, that you would create in us the kind of compassion that reflects your image to this world so that when we practice compassion, It's going to be driven by you in us, by your spirit dwelling in us and acting through us. God, do that in us. This is what we're asking for this morning. Father, I too just lift up this week to you and all that's going to happen here, fill each one of our volunteers with your compassion. Let it flow through them to the kids that are going to be in this building and outside here this week. Bless this week, Lord. Bless this church and your will be done here. Your way, your resources, your compassion to us, in us, through us. In Jesus' name, amen.